Well, I ask that you take your Bibles in your hands and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. Uh, we've been in a series that we've entitled Ready, Learning How to Find Strength for Today and Hope for Tomorrow. We've been learning about what it means to be ready, ready for the issues and struggles and, and the trials and tribulations that may come uh, in the days ahead of us, uh, having hope that God is in control throughout all the things that may face us each and every day, and then also uh, the hope that Jesus Christ will come back and, and take us uh, to heaven. And this is what the letter uh, to the Thessalonian church is all about. Paul is trying to prepare the people in Thessalonica to be ready. And as we read their letter, we are reminded that we are to be ready. Ready to serve God, ready to honor God, ready to give to God, ready to minister for God, ready uh, for all the things that God calls us to in his word. And in verse 12, I want to start even before the passage that we're going to deal with this morning. In verse 12, Paul exhorts the people in Thessalonica with one job. Notice what he says in our text. He says, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you. Those three words should get us to listen. Encourage, exhort, and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That word walk is a word that's used all the time in Scripture. In fact, it's used a hundred different times in the book, or I'm sorry, in the New Testament, five times in the books that we're studying in First and Second Thessalonians. And the idea of walk is the idea that is synonymous with living the Christian life. Just as each and every day we get up and we go and step after step into our lives, so the Christian life is a process of taking one step after another as we journey, as we process uh, through this life closer and closer to Jesus Christ. But as we learn, at times walking isn't as easy as we may want it to be. Uh, some of you may be aware my family got away for a vacation and we went on a cruise this last week. And we mocked you incessantly when we saw the below zero weather as we were enjoying 80 degree weather and then uh, we hated coming back. But uh, one of the days, in fact the second day that we were on the boat, uh, we hit some rough waters. The storm that now is pummeling the east coast was coming out of the Gulf of Mexico and, uh, and uh, the southern parts of where we were at. And uh, the seas got pretty rocky. And walking became very difficult. It looked like a bunch of drunken individuals on the ship. And we're wobbling back and forth and we're struggling. And the reason why was the, uh, the world around us was shaking. Uh, we were not on a firm foundation. And it noticed. You, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing people really faltering in their walk. Well, just like on that cruise ship, as Christians... Uh, we are called to walk, and there are times, there are moments in our lives where walking isn't going to be easy. The waves of trials and tribulations and, and temptation will come, and the job of those waves is to knock you down. And what we've come to learn is that we've got to be founded. One of the things I was amazed with is that those who were on the ship, the crew, they seemed unfazed by it. They would be walking with all this food and beautiful glassware, and they'd be walking, and we're falling all over the place, and how are you doing today? Hope you're having a great day. Unfazed by the rocky waves around them. Why? Because they had learned how to walk worthy, even in the most severe of storms. Here's what Paul is teaching us this morning. He wants us amidst the waves of life, amidst the waves that, that come crashing into our world, that we might be able to walk in such a way that we don't falter, that we're not hindered in our walk, but we can walk confidently in the Lord and serve him well. So how, how do we get there? How do we become those who are able to weather whatever storm comes our way? The answer is seen in verses 13 through 16 this morning, and we're going to look at two ways that we can find ourselves walking worthy uh, in the Lord. So how do we get there? Christ followers uh, who walk worthy are those who respond correctly, who respond correctly to the biblical preaching, who respond correctly to biblical preaching. How do you respond when the Word of God is taught to you is indicative of how you are going to live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. As we look at the Word of God, we must recognize that the Word of God has been given to us so that you and I may not falter, 
that we may not fall in our walk with our God. Uh, The psalmist says that how does a young man keep his way pure? How does he walk upright in a world of sin? By meditating and, and, and receiving the word of God implanted into his life. And so Paul says, hey, Thessalonians, you want to walk worthy amidst all the trials and, and tribulations that you face? You need to respond in a certain way when the word of God is taught to you, when you're reading it, when you're studying it, so that you may respond in the right way. Well, before I tell you as the people how to respond to my preaching, I thought it may be important to remind you what God has called me to as the preacher. You see, nowhere in the text does Paul talk about his uh, focus, his um, idea surrounding preaching. But in a book just a couple pages back from where we're at in 2 Timothy, Paul commands Timothy what it means to preach the word. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy for a moment. So if you're in 1 Thessalonians, go to your right a couple pages. You'll go through 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Timothy. Go a couple more pages to the book of 2 Timothy. If you don't like doing that, go to page 996 in your pew Bible. And Paul tells Timothy in one of his last words to his young disciple, Paul says, Timothy, hey, you're a preacher, here's your job. It's not going to be easy, it's not going to be all fun and games, but I'm going to give you four things you need to remember when you preach. And I want you to notice that these are the same four things that every preacher who stands in the pulpit this morning needs to be doing. Here's my job description. Whoever uh, the elders place in this pulpit, this is what they're called to do. Notice what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's stop there. Within those four verses, we are given four points in a job description for any preacher. The first one is, the preacher's job is to preach biblically. Preach biblically. Notice what he says. Preach the word. Listen, my job is not to preach the newspaper. My job is not to preach the latest music video I saw on TV. My job is not to preach on the gossip of the church. My job is not to preach um, just wonderful flowery stories that uh, become chicken soup for the soul. My job is to preach one particular text, the Word of God. How we do that here is we take it very seriously. We start in one, uh, at the start of a book of the Bible, and we walk through it verse by verse. We want to preach the Word of God. Now notice what he says. The reason why you have to preach biblically, preacher, is because you're preaching, notice in verse 1, in the presence of God. Listen, you are not my audience this morning. You are not the one that I'm really all that concerned about this morning on whether you say at the back door as you're heading out, Tim, that was a great message. It makes me feel good, so keep doing it, but that's not the purpose. The purpose for the preacher is to recognize this morning that he's not preaching to hundreds in this church building today, but I am preaching before an audience of one. So at the end of the day, when I'm done preaching, the question is, did God say, well done? And if he didn't, I don't care the multitudes of people that come and say, that was outstanding. If God says, hey, you blew it, you didn't say what I said in that text, you didn't address that text in a way that that I had written it, then I have failed, not only you, but I have failed my calling as a preacher before the Lord. Preach biblically. Notice number two, preach authoritatively. We need to preach authoritatively. Notice, the idea of preaching the word is literally to be a herald, one who proclaims a message. Uh, In in the days of of, uh, Timothy, he would understand what this means. We don't because we're involved in mass communication. We get our information through social media. But back in the day, if a king or a ruler wanted to get a message across, 
to his people, he would send runners out who would be messengers. And they would be given the task of, first of all, hearing the message from the king. Here, this is what's going to happen. So let's use the story of Christmas. Caesar Augustus issued a decree. He didn't go on CNN. He didn't write it in the Chicago Tribune. He didn't put it on Facebook. None of those things were around. How did Caesar Augustus issue his decree? He sent out hundreds, if not thousands of men to run or to ride horses to particular cities. Those messengers would go to the city gate and would stand in the town square and they would announce, hear ye, hear ye, Caesar Augustus has issued a decree. Now listen, what the the messenger would do is he would announce not on his own authority what was going to be done. He was just a messenger. The authority that he spoke from was the king's authority. So if Caesar Augustus has issued a decree that every man go back to his hometown for a census, and by the way, bring your money because you're going to be taxed. Well, who are you to tell us that? You're just a mere messenger. Hey, I'm not speaking on my authority, the messenger would say. I'm speaking on behalf of the king. As a preacher, listen to me, I carry no authority at all. I'm a 39-year-old man with minimal education. I run a catering business. I struggle to exercise. Don't laugh, that's not funny. Okay? Struggle in my life, as as many of you do. Struggle with these words. I carry no authority. Okay? I I got nothing apart from the word of God that I proclaim. And so what we need to recognize this morning is when when we hear from a preacher, we're not hearing from them, we're hearing from God when they preach biblically. Preach biblically, preach authoritatively. Number three, we need to be able to preach pastorally. Preach pastorally. What does that mean? What it means is, is preach to a group of people that you know. And what that means is that you're willing to do some things in their life. Notice what he says in verse 2. You're going to preach in season and out of season. When it's popular, when it's not, he says, okay, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. What that means is a preacher's job, listen, is to get into your life. It's to get personal with you. It's to ask the hard questions. My job this morning is to, in essence, drill into your life as I speak the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God is a double-edged sword. And if I'm the herald of that double-edged sword, that sword's going into each one of our hearts, and it's cutting into our lives, and it's asking questions, and it's demanding answers in our lives. Now, my job is not to demand, do you answer me? My job is to cause you to answer the question that God is demanding of you. And so we need to preach pastorally. Now, now we got to be careful because some will say, well, then now I'm going to get into everybody's business. Now I'm going to really let people have it. Paul says, hey, Timothy, this is not licensed to beat up people. Notice he says, you're going to do these things with complete patience. Why? Because, Timothy, just like the people you're preaching to, you're lost. And without Christ, you're in trouble. You were once a sinner lost and outside of the salvation of God. You are still a work in progress. And so what do you do? You teach them. The idea there of that word teaching is a mother and a father daily teaching their children what it means to be a a solid human being, what it means to live life in a godly way. And so every week we do the same thing. We pick up this book and we say, okay, what are we to learn from it? How are we to grow from it? We are to preach this word pastorally. Finally, we're to preach it persistently. Notice verse 4, it says, uh, for the time will come, sorry, verse 3, time will come uh, and uh, is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. What that means is Paul says to Timothy, what you're going to do isn't going to be popular. There's going to be people who are going to get up and leave and say, you know what? I don't like what you're teaching. I'll go find someone who teaches something different, who makes me feel better about what I'm doing, and uh, that will make Sunday morning go a whole lot faster for me. If I can agree, if if someone can get up and say, man, you're great, you're wonderful, uh, you're the best thing in the world, man, just uh, make sure that the world revolves around you, that's easy listening, right? That makes you feel good. And Timothy was told, hey, even when people walk away from that, you keep doing what you're called to do. Preach the word persistently. Now notice a couple things about this job description. 
Nowhere in the text does it say a preacher's job is to entertain. Nowhere does it say, and make sure that in your sermon that you make your audience laugh this many times. Or make sure you get them to cry with tear-jerking stories. Make sure that you, listen preacher, your job is to make sure that you keep the listener's attention because they live in an ADD world and they're going to struggle. So make sure that you keep their attention in this way and do it with all the glitz and glamour of the best presentation you can find. Paul said, I did not come with you with great eloquence. I didn't have all the words. I didn't have everything. In fact, I came to you in in shameful ways because I was broken, I was beat up, I was knocked down, and still you listen to the Word of God. The job of the preacher, to preach the Word. The job of the people. Now let's get back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, what does it say? Paul says, verse 13, and we thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, the believers. How do you walk worthy? You receive the word of God, first of all, doing so by appreciating when it is taught. Appreciating it. Notice in the text, it says you received the word of God, which you heard from us. They shared a message, and how did the Thessalonians respond? Notice, they literally put out the welcome mat. They prepared themselves to hear the Word of God taught in their life. They looked forward to it. They anticipated it. They, they made sure that they were ready to receive it. Uh, very similar in this word picture of received literally is, is the picture of hospitality. You're inviting some friends over that you haven't seen for a while. And what do you do? You clean the house and you prepare the house and and you're excited. You've put it on the date, on the calendar, and you're looking only a couple more days and and the Johnsons are going to be at our place and we're going to be able to reminisce and talk with them. And, And you prepare everything so that the time with the Johnsons is the best time you could ever have. Why? Because you appreciate who you're welcoming into your home. Here's what Paul is trying to say. As Christians, I'm not, listen, I'm not talking to people who are, are, are maybe in the process of trying to understand God or maybe uh, searching out and investigating the claims of Christianity. Paul is talking to Christians, and likewise, I'm talking to you, the fellow Christians here at Village Bible Church who, who have heard the Word of God taught over and over again. Are you one who appreciates it? The way you respond to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God goes hand in hand with how you respond to Jesus Christ. Let me explain. We need to recognize today that not only do we serve Jesus Christ, who is the living Word, we also revere and uphold the written Word, the Scriptures before us. Jesus and the Word are synonymous in many ways when they are described. Jesus and the Bible are both called bread, They're both called light, and they're both called truth. And so this begs the question this morning. How ready this morning were you to hear the Word of God? Did you prepare your hearts this morning as you got up, maybe even starting last night? Lord, I'm going to hear from you tomorrow. And I want to hear you in a right way, so how do I prepare my heart to hear what you have to tell me tomorrow? Lord, I'm going to pray especially for that knucklehead Bedal, because I don't want to hear from him. I want to hear from you. And so, Lord, uh, make him decrease so that you might increase so that when he preaches the word, I know that he's brought the word of God so I can apply it to my lives. Are you appreciating the word of God? Now, sadly, listen, sadly, many Christians who say they love Jesus who, who say that they will die for Jesus, come into church, and when the service begins, and when I talk about receiving the word, I'm not just talking about this time that, that I'm preaching, but I'm talking about the whole service. A service that's dedicated. Listen, you didn't hear anything about the NFL football games in that, in that part of the service, right? You haven't heard anything about the political campaigns that are going on. Everything we've done up to this point and through this point is all pointed to Jesus Christ. And in that, here's the dilemma. For those who say they love Jesus, far too many of us, 
As soon as we sit down, go into an exercise motion of doing this. You get a good workout, okay? And you, you know, the biceps start feeling better. Why? Because you're constantly looking at your watch. You're sitting there going, when are we going to be done? We sang too much. Tim talks too much. This thing's going on too long. Now, let me remind you that when you're sitting in your living room, that exercise motion never happens, right? You're never worried about that. But as Christians, we struggle today because we forget that we are called to receive the Word of God. Let me liken it to something. I get a postcard in the mail, and the postcard in the mail says that this group of people, this organization, is holding a recognition dinner for my wife, Amanda. Tells me where it's going to be, Hyatt Regency Ballroom, and the night is dedicated to just loving on Amanda, recognizing all that she's done, and, and the great wife that she is, the great mother that she is, community member, pastor's wife, all of these wonderful things. And I go there, dress up, and, and I go to the meal, and they start talking about Amanda. Person after person gets up, and oh, Amanda this, and Amanda that. And what do I do? Are we done already? I mean, enough about this woman. I, I've got enough. When is going to serve dessert? You know, okay, you heard one story about the woman, you heard another story. I could give you a couple stories, okay? Enough is enough. Listen to me. My problem isn't with the presenters. My problem isn't with the organizers of the event. My problem is I don't love Amanda like I say I do. Because let me tell you something. If I really love Amanda, then I will never grow old in hearing people speak wealth, nice and great things about her. But as Christians, we do this all the time. Jesus, I've had enough of you. I've heard enough. Okay, when are we out of here? When are they going to serve donuts already? Okay, come on. Enough with Jesus. Paul says the Thessalonians walked worthy because they put out a welcome mat. I have come to hear the word of God spoken. I need this this week. If I don't get this, then this week is not going to be a good week for me. We receive the word of God. We appreciate it. Number two, we accept it. We accept the word of God. Verse 13, middle part of the verse, it said they received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. Listen, God is speaking to you this morning. He's knocking on every heart this morning. And the question is, are you going to open the door of your life for Christ to enter in? He's speaking to us, and he's saying, I want you to walk worthy. Those aren't my words. Those are his words. I want you to walk worthy. And many of us, no doubt, when we pick a church, we'll go to the doctrinal statement or the statement of beliefs of that church, and we'll look and say, what do they believe about the Bible? And they will determine whether they're going to stay at the church or not if the Bible is the word of God that it's inspired by God and that it's God-breathed. What, what, what Paul tells Timothy, that God spoke these words through the uh, written hearts of men that were placed in the Scriptures. And you'd say, yes, I believe that. I affirm that. But when it comes to recognizing and accepting what is taught, we are quick to say, well, that's not for me. I don't need to listen. I mean, really, you know, that's just Tim kind of going off on his own interpretation or, or that. But what the Thessalonians did is they accepted it. They weren't hearing from a wise old sage, the Apostle Paul. They knew that they were hearing from God. And so this morning, as the Word of God is open, every time the Word of God is open, is an opportunity for you to hear from God. And the question is this morning, are you listening? Are you listening to what He has to say? The psalmist put it this way when it came to the teaching of the Word of God and, and the reverence of it. He said this in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring uh, forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. 
Moreover, by them your servant is warned that in keeping them there is great reward. Do you agree with that this morning? Do you accept the Word of God as it is being taught by those around you as something that is to be beholden? Three questions this morning. Would you rather have the Bible than food? Job said, I've esteemed the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. God's Word is described as bread, milk, and meat. It's even described as honey. Would you have food rather than the Word? How about would you rather have God's Word than money? The writer of the book of Psalms made it clear that he would rather have the Word of God than all riches. He would rather have the Word of God than the thousands of pieces of gold and silver. That he'd rather have the Word than the fine gold in all the world. That he'd rather have the Scriptures than the great spoils of the earth. Would you rather have God's Word or money? Finally, would you rather have God's Word more than sleep? The psalmist once again says, My eyes anticipate the night watches so that I might meditate on your word. He says, hey, I'm looking forward to some quiet time, not to rest, not to close my eyes, but an opportunity to hear from the word of God, to meditate on it, to think on it, to, to, to spend time in it. Paul says you have to accept it and receive it. Finally, we need to apply it. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, this word is at work in you. They looked forward to it. They recognized where it had come from. And when it had been finished, being shared with them, they right away sought to figure out how to apply it to their lives. The phrase at work literally is the Greek word energio. It's where, the, where we get the English word energy from. And so the question this morning is, we hear the Word of God preached in our lives, we, we receive it, we say, okay, Lord, you're speaking to me, and then what we do is we get up and we walk out, and, and studies tell us, listen, this is crazy, studies tell us that the majority of preaching is forgotten within two hours of the hearing of it. So what they did is they went and they had people go to church, and then they made calls to those people. And the question they had was, what do you remember about the sermon? And within two hours, they had forgotten what the sermon was all about. Listen, how can you apply that which you've forgotten? So, the Thessalonians said, hey, we're not going to forget this. It's the Word of God. God is speaking to us this morning, and we're going to hear it, and we're going to recognize it for what it is, and, and we're going to apply it to our lives. It's going to do something to us. So they took to heart what was being said. It changed them. How did it change them? In chapter 1, verse 9, it changed them to turn from their idols to the living and true God. They were willing to give up the idols in their life and say, you know what? The Word of God says, i got to give that up. I heard this morning at church from the Apostle Paul, I, I can't continue to hold up these idols as being as important as God. Something's got to give I've got to give them up. They turned away from their idols. Notice in, in chapter 1, they endured great hardship with incredible joy. Well, how's life going for you right now, Steve? Not real well, Tim. Thanks for asking. I'm getting beat up pretty good. Why? Because I follow Christ. Why is there a smile on your face? Because the Word of God says it's okay. It's all right. That these light and momentary trials... Uh, won't, won't compare in any way to the exceeding glory that's coming my way. And so I'm going to hold to the Word of God, not the circumstances of life. I'm going to apply it. Notice they're going to leave sexual immorality in chapter 3. They're going to walk away from all of that. And they're going to walk in fellowship with Christ in chapter 3. Chapter 4, even though trials and tribulations are facing them, they, with hopeful expectation, are going to look to the return of Jesus Christ. This then forces us at Village Bible Church to ask, well, how do we respond to the Word? When was the last time you allowed, and whoever's preaching, to take what they have said and to apply it to our lives? To meditate on it throughout the week. You know, the word Bible is our middle name, Village Bible Church. The question is, as a people, is the Bible central to all that we do? 
It was for the Thessalonians. And because of that, they were able to walk worthy amidst the storm. But notice, why in the world would he spend so much time talking about receiving and accepting and, and, and applying the Word of God? Because Paul recognized what we too must recognize. We need a foundation. We need to recognize that where we are going to turn when life goes south for us, when the circumstances of life don't go the way we think that they're going to, when the medical report comes and it's negative, when the relationship that you thought would be forever has fallen apart, when the kid that you had all the dreams about seems to be going in a wayward way, when the money you thought that was going to be in the account is no longer there, the Word of God in those moments allows us to stand strong even when the ship of our lives is booing back and forth. And so Paul says, hey, understand, study the Word of God, know the Word of God, apply the Word of God to your life so that when troubled times come, you're able to weather the storm. And here's why. Because he says to walk worthy is to react in the proper way when persecution comes. How are we going to react when the persecution comes our way? Notice verses 15 and 16. Or starting with verse 14. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to fill up the full measure of their sin. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. The Thessalonians had watched the Apostle Paul be driven out of their city by a mob that hated the gospel. Paul had then headed to Berea. And he had had some initial success at Berea, only to have the same mob from Thessalonica head over to Berea and, and, and beat him up and, and stop him from preaching the gospel. And they were spectators to that. And they saw that what was going on. Gee whiz, Paul's really having a hard time here. But as we learn in the text, that same persecution that Paul was facing was now going to come back upon them. They were going to find themselves under great affliction. The book of Acts says in Thessalonica, a man by the name of Jason and some other leaders of the Thessalonican church would be charged numerous fines for holding to the Christian faith. And now trouble was coming their way. Listen, it wasn't easy in Thessalonica as a, as a Jew to convert to Christianity. People were losing their jobs as a result of their faith. They were losing their property, their standing in the world. Their families were disowning them because of their love of Jesus. Now, really, for the most part, none of that's true here in America. We don't deal with that. We don't struggle with that. And if, and if it happens, it happens on such a small level. But we need to recognize that that wasn't always the case in Thessalonica, and it may not always be the case here in America. The persecution that we are spectators of all around the world may one day find itself in our lives, in our backyard. And in those moments, as we look to this, are we going to choose Christ or our comfort? Will we choose our Savior or society to follow? Well, if we're founded on the Word of God and we believe what the Word of God has told us, then Christ says that we will stand firm in those troubled times. Now, before we understand this idea of persecution, we've got to ask, where did it come from? Well, Paul says, those that were doing the persecuting were the Jews. Notice he tells us in the text that this issue that they're facing, these things that they're struggling with, came in verse 14, at the end of verse 14, from the Jews. I want you to recognize this morning that this passage of Scripture has been used by Christians to inflict great harm on the Jewish people. And we need to recognize that. We need to own in some ways what our, what our forefathers of the faith did as a result of this. And we've got to recognize a couple things. First of all, we have to ask the question, when Paul says this, is he speaking generically to all Jewish people of all time, of all places? 
Well, we need to recognize, first of all, it would be hard for Paul to be anti-Semitic being a Jewish individual himself. And as we look at other writings, we need to recognize, is Paul bashing, is he sharing bigoted language towards the Jews? That's a conversation that's going on in our day, in our political world. Can you say things about people that are bigoted? Well, is this what Paul's saying? Notice, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, this same apostle Paul says he's willing to be banished to hell for all of his countrymen, the Jews. What he's saying is, listen, God, I'll go to hell. I'll endure all that hell means for an individual. I'll endure all of that so my countrymen, the Jewish people, can experience glory in your presence for all eternity. Doesn't sound very anti-Semitic to me. He's willing to lay down his life for those people. He also, with great marvel in that same passage of Romans 9, 10, and 11, says that the Jewish people are some of the most blessed people in all of the world. Theirs is the promise of the Messiah. Theirs is the patriarch. Theirs is the prophets. He sits there and says, man, what a blessed group of people. He says that. And so what are we to do with this passage of Scripture? First of all, we need to recognize when Paul says the Jews, he's not speaking of a generic group of people. He's speaking about the very individuals who are doing the persecuting. So what he's saying is, and maybe I can liken it this way, hopefully this will work. It would be as if turning on the news and saying, or watching the news, that a large bald individual went on a uh, stealing rampage. And you saw me the next day, and what do you say of me? You're a thief. Well, why would you call me a thief? Well, I heard that there's this bald individual who went on a a spree of stealing. And therefore, if that bald guy is bad, then all bald guys must be mad. Okay? They must all be a bunch of thieves. Well, that's wrong. Is it wrong for us to say of an individual, you're a thief, if they are guilty of that? No, we're speaking the truth. Is it wrong for us to lump all bald people because one bald guy's a thief? All bald men then are thieves? Yeah. You've become a bigot in that way. You've pronounced upon me something that isn't true. What Paul is saying is, listen, he's saying the same people that were wreaking havoc a couple decades ago with John the Baptist and Jesus Christ are the same ones that are coming after me and are the same ones coming after you. How would he know that? Because remember, at one point, he was doing the persecuting himself. And so he's saying, I know who these people are. The people who are doing this are guilty of these things. Not all Jews, but these Jews in particular are. Let's be reminded this morning that when Christ was about to be crucified, remember, Pontius Pilate says, I want nothing to do with this. I have found no reason to crucify this Jesus. I wash my hand of this man's blood. The, The Jewish individuals of that day, of that day, point to him and say, crucify him. And he says, but he's innocent. And they said, let his blood be on our heads. We know what we're doing. We know what we're asking for. Let us deal with the consequences of that. And Paul, as a young Pharisee, would be trained up by those individuals. And we only remember from the death of Jesus Christ, there's only about 15 to 17 years difference between the writing of 1 Thessalonians and uh, the events surrounding Easter. And so those same individuals found themselves hurling insults. Now, what does this mean for us as Christians? Number one, it's a reminder that we must be very careful not to lump groups of people Uh, We're not struggling that. Listen, as a Jewish people right now, what's the big debate right now? Do we lump all Muslims together? And there's a lot of Christians that today find themselves saying, yeah, they're all bad. None of them can be trusted. So let's, let's not show love. Let's not show sincerity. Let's not minister to them because they're all bad. And I get there's political questions. I get that there's sec- uh, security questions. But at the heart of it, are we lumping a group of people together for the sake of that. And here's the thing. We never want that done when some crazy whack job goes into an abortion clinic and blows it up in the name of Jesus. What do we say? He's not one of us. We would never do that. And so we need to recognize the same ethnic issues that were going on in Paul's days are alive and well in our days. 
And what are we concerned about? We're, we're worried about persecution. And so Paul makes it clear. And so let us not fall prey to what Christosom of the fourth century, an early church father did. He wrote eight sermons where he accused Jewish people of all kinds of heinous acts that weren't true. He said they were incestuous, they were cannibals, that they would steal other people's children. He told his congregation that they should be captured up and thrown into the ghettos never to be seen again. How about one of the great reformers, Martin Luther? Martin Luther, in his very old age, one of the last things he wrote was a, uh, a paper written on the Jews and their lies. And what would he say in that? He would say that Jews should be, and their synagogue should be burned down. Their books should be stolen from them. And that they should be confined to places like prisons. Let us be careful, even in our fear of another group of people, not to fall prey to hatred instead of love. So what do we know from this? The issue of persecution, a couple things the Bible tells us. Number one, persecution should never surprise us. It should never surprise us. Notice verse 14. For you suffered the same things. The struggles, the troubles and that the Thessalonians faced were no different than what Paul and his companions faced. They were no different than what the churches around them faced. They couldn't say, oh, woe is us. We're really struggling here. We're having it really, really bad. Someone, you know, come and, and relieve us of this. What does Paul say? Hey, listen, what you're dealing with, what you're struggling with, everybody's dealing with. We're all in the same boat. They're persecuting all of us. Which then begs the question this morning, what does that mean for us who suffer so little here in America? What do we do with 2 Timothy 3.12 that says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted? What do we do with that? When we don't experience persecution, are we smarter than Jesus was? Have we figured it out? Paul seems to say that the suffering that they experienced was not exceptional but rather typical. So the question is, why do we have it so here, easy here in the U.S.? Some say that the persecuted church grows better Christians, perhaps. It seems to me that the witness of Scripture shares that the persecuted church is better reflected in the phrase that better Christians tend to produce greater persecution. When we're more active in our faith, listen, it's not, it's not hard for you not to be persecuted when you never say anything in your workplace, right? When people don't know you're a believer. But start telling people that you're a believer. Start sharing your faith actively. You will get some resistance. You will find yourself sitting by yourself at the lunchroom table you will lose friends. You will lose loved ones when you stand for the truth. Not all will do that, but many might. And Paul seems to say that the reason why the Thessalonians were experiencing the same struggles as the other churches is because they were doing things right. So three conclusions I have before I move on to two more things and we'll close is this. First of all, when we talk about persecution, and I say this with all due respect, USA Christians, stop belly aching about the inconveniences we face. Oh, it's hard to be a Christian here in America. Let's be reminded of our friends and brothers and sisters in Christ right now who are running for their lives, knowing if they're captured, they'll be decapitated for their faith. Any of you worried about that on Monday morning? Any of us? Let me tell you something. We don't even have to really worry about our jobs in a lot of ways. The legal system is going to be on our side that, that we're going to most likely be able to keep our jobs even amidst the, the beliefs that we have. Very rarely do we hear that someone is, is losing any real major part of their lives because of their faith here, faith here in America. And so let us, first of all, stop bellyaching. We've got it so good here. And the question is not to sit back and wait on it, but it's the second thing. Let's use that freedom. Let's use that opportunity to share the goodness of Christ. How much easier is it for us in this land of the free and the home of the brave to communicate that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? Because we might lose some credibility, some popularity. 
People are losing their lives. And they're doing so with great joy in their heart. We've seen the videos. We've heard of the testimonies of men and women who will not give up Christ when a blade is at their throat. We are not worthy to carry their sandals. And we come up with excuses on why we can't preach the Gospel here. Three, we should be praying. We should be praying for those brothers and sisters. They're on the front lines. We're not. They're the ones fighting the gates of hell. We're living in the comforts of our world, looking at our watches, wondering when the sermon's going to be done. They're living it. They're being it. And finally, we should seek ways to allow our faith to be so on fire that we might cause a stir in the world around us. Pray that for a while. That one will hurt. Lord, I want to live such a way that it might cause the world, the peaceful world I live in, to be stirred up. Why do people persecute? I've got to move on. Let's close this thing out. They persecute because they seek to stop the gospel. They seek to stop the gospel. Notice he says you've, they've done this because they hinder us from speaking the gospel. In verse 18, later we'll learn about this next week, that Satan literally is hindering them from preaching the message. What's the purpose of persecution? To silence the message of Christ. Listen, it isn't about you. It isn't about me. It's about Christ. They're angry with Christ, not you, not me. So when you get turned away because of your beliefs in Christ, don't take it personally. It's Jesus that they're upset about. They're angry with Him. What are they doing? They're seeking a way to keep people from hearing the gospel. But here's where God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The weak things of the world to shame the strong, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Tertullian, in the early part of the 2nd century, so this is just about 100 years after the writing of Thess the uh, letters to Thessalonians, writes this to a Roman official while being imprisoned. The more we are mowed, mowed, mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christian martyrs is the seed that grows the church. Do you know when Nero was throwing the Christians to the lions in the Colosseum was the time of the most expansive growth of all of the church? That's crazy. Hey, come and be a follower of Jesus Christ. And guess what you get, Bob? What do we have for them? Feeding to the lions. Enjoy that. And they did it with gladness in their hearts. What an amazing testimony. That even though persecution, the devil says, will destroy it through persecution, God says, it's only going to grow. Finally, persecution causes God to store up his wrath. Verse 16 at the end of our passage, so as always to fill up the full measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. If we were the Thessalonians, we'd want to get our revenge. People are, are coming at us. We need to do something. Let's go after them. Let's attack them. But Paul reminds them that revenge is of the Lord's. It's Him who will repay the verse tells us that every harmful act, every uh, difficult word that they share against Christ is filling up. Literally, the idea here is everything that you endure as a Christian is being filled up, That what he's saying of the Thessalonians. All that they're doing is filling up in God's cup of wrath. And when it reaches its full measure, God takes that cup and pours all of that back on the individuals that did it. Now, there's speculation on when this happened. There was a famine in Judea during the times of the lighting of uh, 1 Thessalonians where thousands of people lost their lives. Some believe that was the wrath that would take place. Others believe that it was an a, a, uh, action by Rome where hundreds, if not thousands of people were killed in the streets of Jerusalem. But most commentators, and one that I would agree with, believe that the wrath that has come upon them would take place some 20 years after Paul writes this. In A.D. 70, Rome would come in after the Jewish upheaval and rebellion, and Rome would bring its greatest general into the streets of Jerusalem with one command from Caesar. Don't let one rock stand on top of another. 
destroy the city and destroy everybody in it. And in A.D. 70, the streets of Jerusalem were destroyed. And the people of Jerusalem were destroyed. What we need to recognize is, listen, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And for those that maybe are in the sound of my voice today who are thwarting the wills and plans of God, God says you may get your way today. But if you think you're going to get away with it, you've got another thing coming. And what a testimony for us that when we endure hardship, when we endure issues and struggles, we can recognize and know that God is in control. He has a plan. And so what is our job? We are to walk worthy. Let me close with this. When the sea was tossing us to and fro, it was hard to walk. But once we got our centered understanding of how it was, as we began to walk amongst those waves, we got a little more comfortable in our circumstances, a little more founded. And what God says is the way that we grow comfortable with trials and tribulations is by getting into the Word of God. So when trials and persecution come, we're ready to walk in a way that's worthy of God. So that, that clo in closing, how do we apply this? We apply it by going to the Lord and asking Him to speak to us. Speak to us like He's never spoken to us before. Maybe a better way of that we might listen like we never have before. And that we may know that whatever God brings our way, it's for our good, and God will use it to expand His kingdom Walking worthy is a life that is founded on the Word of God. Is that true for you and me today? Let's meditate on that this week. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your Word. And I thank you for all that it's taught. This is a hard message, Lord. It was hard to prepare for, hard to preach. But Lord, I know it's even harder to live. So I ask that you would speak to our hearts as we leave. Give us understanding that we may do what is right and good in your eyes. Send us forth from this place, Lord, different, transformed, so that as we endure the hardships that may come, we may do so in a way that's worthy of you, worthy of the kingdom you're calling us into. Now send us forth now, Lord, with your peace and your love. Allow us to fellowship with one another so that we may be encouraged by the lives of those around us. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.